There's no reason New England should have boilerplate. The, the, the icy New England reputation, I'm hell-bent on exhuming that from the protocol of what people perceive New England's king to be. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode 6, Stephen Kircher, President and CEO of Boyne Resorts. You probably remember where you had your big breakthroughs on skis, where you learned to thread glades or stick air or carve. You probably feel pretty good about those places. For me, one of those places is Boyne Mountain, Michigan. That's where bump skiing finally clicked for me on a 70 degree May day in 1996. Now you're probably looking at Boyne's Michigan mountains with their 500 to 550 foot vertical drop from the east coast and wondering what's the big deal. Well for Michigan, these are big ski areas and they do ski big. But Boyne owns a whole lot more than that. They have nine mountains, all of which are on the Icon Pass. These are big, serious mountains. Sugarloaf, Sunday River, Loon, Brighton in Utah, and one of the crown jewels of North American skiing, Big Sky. And yet, Boyne is still a family-owned company, one that was started by Everett Kircher back in the late 1940s. Do you know how hard it is to sustain a business for that long, especially a seasonal one? There's a reason people keep selling their mountains to Vail, to Altera. This is a tough, tough business. But Boyne has maintained that business through constant innovation. Boyne had the first triple chair ever, anywhere. They had the first quad chair, the first six pack. And last year, of course, they launched the first eight pack in North America. Their snowmaking is legendary. Look at Sunday River, always one of the first to open in the East. My guest today is going to talk to us about all of that and about a whole lot more. Let's do it. My guest today is the president and CEO of Boyne Resorts, which operates 11 properties, including nine ski resorts in the United States and Canada. In the Northeast, Boyne owns Sugarloaf and Sunday River, Maine, as well as Loon Mountain, New Hampshire. Boyne also owns Big Sky, Montana, which is the second largest ski area in the United States and the third largest in North America. His family has owned and managed Boyne Resorts for more than 70 years, making it the longest running ski company in the world as well as the third largest overall in North America based on skier visits. Stephen Kircher is my guest. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome, Stuart. Boyne is one of the big boys. It got a little bigger last year. You were managing six mountains, which you'd formerly owned, brought those back officially into the portfolio as owned mountains. Take us into that decision to make those officially Boyne mountains again. Well, yeah, you said we got bigger. We really didn't get bigger last year. We just um, set ourselves up for a better uh, capital structure. It was, to, to a great extent, the plan to grow with um, real estate investment trust capital, which we did with CNL back in the mid 2000s. We we acquired actually uh, four new mountains that we didn't previously own, but we did that by having a relationship we built over the prior years with doing some sale leasebacks, which is a traditional way of. Um, creating capital, and because we're private, we, we were looking for ways to grow, and, and it was, we thought, a good structure. And, and we knew the REIT had about a 10, 11-year time frame in which it had to transact, and we were preparing for the 
the buyback, um, it happened a little differently than we thought. It went through two, two transactions versus one, but it was always the vision. It was our long-term, I guess, DNA thinking that we apply to many things to try to um, do things differently. And we were able to grow through using recapital, the first ones to use that in our space, and uh, it allowed us to set the stage for what was a big refi last year by offering and issuing our first public corporate debt which we were able to buy out those leases and refinance the rest of the company and really set ourselves up with a, a light, much lighter uh, capital cost than we had before. And we can reinvest in these assets now that we own them without having the interference or, or obviously the, you know, somebody looking over our shoulder that owned the assets. Right. And so, so the portfolio is pretty impressive now. And, and Boyne's definitely one of the big boys. But unlike Vale, you're not answering to Wall Street. Uh, it's not Altera where you have this group of investors. It's a family business, which really sets it apart. But what you're answering to is is maybe something larger, which is your father's legacy, right? Because he built this thing starting in the 1940s with Boyne Mountain. So, so what sense of stewardship and responsibility do you feel to carry on that legacy and to manage the company into the future? Well, yeah, you definitely touch on the emotional side, obviously, because it is a family legacy i guess that that i'm i'm i look at myself as carrying the baton forward um you know to the next not let's say my generate next generation per se but certainly the next set of generation of leaders whether they're dna uh connected to me or not I, that that that'll be yet to be determined but you know carrying on the boyne legacy that was started in 1948 49 and um it, it does propel us i mean we we enjoy being a little bit of a renegade, a little bit of a someone who thinks differently and does things differently and um, likes to fly a little under the radar. We don't promote our company brand um, per se. We, we, it's all about the individual DNA of the, of the resorts and nurturing their individuality um, while bringing best practices we can across the network. And, and we're excited about our position and, you know, we, we're excited about our partnership in the icon, but we're also really excited about being the independent. And, and we, I think, can out-invest uh, pound for pound the larger players because they are in a different capital structure. Um, we have investors in our bond, so we got to you know make sure we're doing a good job to make uh, our capital structure get better and better over time. But we're excited, very excited. And uh, some of the early benefits of this are starting to happen, be it um, investments in Big Sky and, and elsewhere that we're rolling out, and, and next year will be even a bigger year. So we're 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 poised to compete and hopefully push the big boys into some new places that they didn't expect to be pushed into. Well, Boyne is different, and, and you know one of the things that's always stood out to me about the company is that you know Vale they started with their big flagship out in Colorado. Everyone knows Vale huge mountain. Um, Altera is made up of some some pretty big uh, mountains as well. And they've sort of made a business model out of gathering feeder mountains, these smaller mountains near metro areas. Now, Boyne started with these big for Michigan, but but small, relatively speaking, to your better known destination resorts. Uh, they started with Boyne Mountain, Boyne Highlands, uh, acquired Big Sky in the 70s, and then slowly grew from there. How was Boyne able to flip the script and be the little guy that became one of the big boys in this industry? Well, it's interesting. We take, you know, it's obviously taken seven decades, and, and we look at things in, 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 in that kind of time frame. So 
you go back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, and certainly through the 60s, Boyne was one of the big guys, if you will, in the industry. And, and with our Gatlinburg um, operation, you know, fueling um, cash flow that others didn't have, we, we actually were probably doing as well as anybody was in the 50s and 60s as a company. So we were really probably one of the big big boys, although we didn't have a big mountain. It was a, a mountain of a molehill, as Warren Miller used to say about Boyne Mountain or, or whatever he, he said. It was always kind of a sarcastic commentary, a 500-foot mountain. Um, doing what it was doing, but we had Stein Erickson here. We had, you know, Otmar Schneider, two two Olympians. We had a lot of growth. There was a lot of innovation. Snowmaking really had its home here in in at Boyne, and and certainly the lift technologies. All these things were happening here. So, uh, you know, we started acquiring, you know, diversifying geographically in the in the 50s, and then the 70s in earnest with the acquisition of Big Sky, which was just a fledgling. Uh, had just opened, and we had looked at Telluride and passed on it, looked at Jackson and passed on it the prior two years, both of which were not uh, profitable and, and, and not doing very well. And I, I would argue in Vail, until the uh, tunnel went through, it was not making money either until 1971. So if you look back at that time, we were arguably probably one of the big players that people didn't really Recognize certainly in hindsight, um, it seems strange to think of it that way. But we methodically acquired um, over time and, and built momentum. And you know, we, we didn't acquire in a flurry. We, we've acquired a resort probably one every decade, approximately. I mean, with, with obviously the, the CNL transactions in the mid 2000s allowing us to do four at one time. But it's been methodical. It's been focused. You know, we looked at geographical diversity early, early on. My father was a pilot. You know, that gave him a unique perspective on the world. He flew to Sun Valley in the 50s and even the 40s. So the idea of flying to Montana or flying across the country and, and managing a resort uh, remotely was not foreign to him, where everybody else who was managing ski resorts was really domicile in their regions. They never really thought outside their their home area, if you will. And that was a, a big part of it, you know, him being a pilot. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, you know, when you take the long view like that, it makes complete sense. And, and you see the the logic behind it and the methodical way that Boyne has built itself up over the decades. And, you know, you've seen these other conglomerates come and go, American Skiing Company, uh, Altera kind of picked up the scraps of IntraWest. How was Boyne able to learn from the mistakes that other, others made to last for so long? Because 70 plus years in the ski business, this is a tough business. It is a tough business. Uh, I mean, we, we avoided some of the mistakes, like overpaying. You know, if you buy too many resorts at a high price, you're, you're probably going to strangle yourself with debt. That's one thing we avoided. Um, if, if you aren't geographically diversified and you haven't invested in prioritized snowmaking as a company, you're probably going to have a bad winter or two or have, you know, too much concentration in one area. And ASC was really, uh, they, they suffered from some of that. Um, they had a couple bad, three bad winners in a row, and they were heavily located in New England. They also executed their real estate poorly. And we got close to real estate uh, execution issues, but we, we avoided them without taking up too much debt at, at, the, at the boom times. But we learned, uh, you know, we have a number of folks that came from ASC and a number of folks that came from uh, IntraWest and Booth. And, and certainly we've, I, when we acquired some of the resorts that were in those other companies, I, I would sit down with those folks and talk about 
look, it's not the Boyne way, it's the best way. What are the learnings, what's the best practices that you learned from Booth, InterWest, uh, ASC, and we applied those to us, and we basically, you know, amalgamated our culture to include some of the learnings that obviously we had, but but others, and, and how we organize ourselves, um, especially, we learned a lot in that mid-2000s, mid how to organize ourselves and, and set better practices and, and better controls on cash management, on budgets, etc. cetera. Uh, my father was not a big budget guy. He actually forbade budgets because he wanted everything to come to him. So we were not culturally set up to grow uh, and, and control things from an accounting perspective um, that we learned those lessons in the 2000s. So those are some of the examples, I think, of, of that process in play. Right. It's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they look back at American Skiing Company, Interwest, they, you know, the failures stand out. But what you're saying is there was a lot to learn from them, and there was a lot to learn about modernizing your own operation and continuing to make it flourish into the future. Oh, I, I, I'll tell you, there, there were a lot of great examples of positives. I mean, as much as Les Otten, you know, has, you know, a certain reputation, he, he was a genius on some levels and a visionary on some levels, and, and many things he did were positive. I can list, you know, probably an equal number that I'd, I'd counterweight that with. But InterWest, you know, really changed the world in terms of uh, developing ski and ski out products that drove ultimately the operations to become profitable. And they executed extraordinarily well during the late 90s and into the mid 2000s. Um, and I think that the profitability of the resorts that are currently in Altera are because of what InterWest executed well. And uh, we learned a few lessons. And we were actually the first company to do condo hotels in the world. Another one of our first um, did that in the early 80s uh, in Michigan. And that was one of the things that allowed us to build bed base um, through that period and not have too much capital tied up in, in, in large hotel projects. And InterWest certainly took that to another level, and we learned from that. So I want to talk a little bit about the multi-passes because you're, you've continued to evolve here. And, and one of those was joining the Max Pass when that was a thing. Then KSL and IntraWest merged to form Altera. You already had a partnership with some of their mountains through Max Pass. What was your reaction to that partnership forming? Uh, and this was before they announced the Icon Pass or anything. Just take us through that. Well, actually, it was myself and Bill Jensen. I was talking to John Cumming and I was talking to Bill Jensen. I was talking to John Cumming, and, and, and Bill called me and said, could we link up on a PASS program? And I said, well, that's I was about to call you, and I've been talking to John Cumming. We came up with a max pass through uh, communication between the three players um, and, and developed a partnership. It was a true partnership. Max pass was a partnership between Powder, Boyne Resorts, and Interwest. And uh, that partnership went forward, and obviously when Altera was formed from – the merger of IntraWest and and the uh, KSL assets on the West Coast. My first call, my first email when I heard that it was happening was was to within seconds when I heard it was to all the leaders of the different companies saying let's keep the band together. And I know we may want to change it a little bit, but um, the Max Pass has got great momentum, and let's move forward with this partnership. So it. Really, ICON really was just a uh, reconstitution in a better way of what MaxPass was with far better destinations and, and, a, and a better structure, much more 
probably akin to what the Epic Epic product uh, offers. So it was a migration from those relationship building uh, events and and having MaxPass evolve into the icon. Did you ever consider a, a Boyne Pass since you own mountains just spread all across the country? Yeah, we, we've talked about one size fits all, but again, we're all about individual DNA. And um, if you're going to price everything the same and have access the same everywhere, um, you really lose that individual DNA from our perspective. We have had since 1976 cross benefit from our our resort. So we've always had benefits that you could ski Big Sky from Michigan on any of your passes all the way up until the Max Pass happened. That's the first time we had to eliminate that. So for 40 years, we had cross-resort benefits. And when we opened uh, you know, for business ups in New England with, with the three resorts out there, the New England Pass had cross-benefits to Montana and Utah built in. So I, I guess in some way, we've handled it that way. We've always had a Boyne Pass, if you will, but it's always been nested within a local pass product that was appropriate for that market. Yeah, and it, it seems like if I'm reading it correctly, most Boyne Pass holders now get three days at the sister resorts that are outside of their geographies. Yeah, the uh, the unlimited um, unlimited passes have, have uh, cross-resort benefits, correct. So you're a year into the Icon Pass relationship. We just wrapped up uh, the last season. How'd it go? Uh, we're very, very happy with you know the continued momentum again it kind of builds off of what max pass uh was was seeing and it took it to another level put it to another gear um the number of folks that that had icon were significantly higher partially because all of the altera passes became icon so that you know built in a huge increase on its own the rocky mountain super pass really became an icon pass and that was like over a hundred thousand skiers in that market were um, brought in. So we were very excited about it. It had much bigger impact on our destination resorts uh, in Montana and Utah than we'd had in the past, which was a positive. Volume was strong above what we expected. And, you know, with a very strong winter across the whole country, everyone saw, you know, really strong skier visits out of the icon relationship and there's some growing pain certainly the volume um, put pressure on certain resorts big sky luckily can handle a lot more people but you know the locals who are used to minute and a half lift lines um, going to three minutes are you know thinking the world ended but besides that nuance we haven't seen any negative it seemed like the mountain management out at big sky took that pretty seriously and and that they addressed the community and and did their best to kind of make good. Was that your perception as well? Well, there's growing pains. I mean, what's interesting is is how people point to, and I don't get political on you on this podcast, but you know, people like to create scapegoats, and and obviously we like to point our problems on Chinese or or immigrants as taking American jobs or whatever it might be when there's an underlying issue that's beyond that, maybe that's actually causing it. And you know, in Montana's case, as is Jackson, there's been huge growth going on for the last several years at those resorts independent of the icon. And uh, when you add a little more momentum with the icon and people point to one thing they can identify with, they blame that one thing. And it's, it's, 
it's five or six things that are impacted. I would argue that Airbnb may be the biggest contributor to the quote-unquote increase in skier days in some of the Western destinations of anywhere. That one event that's happened over the last three years, um, really, in terms of penetration, market penetration, it's opened up bed base that we had never imagined would be filled from rental pur- purposes. So, you know, it's easy to blame an icon pass holder and, and try to demonize them, but, you know, it's pointing a finger at the wrong wrong issue, and I would say that's much like our political dialogue is right now. There's There's just... Uh, the tendency to make it easy and simple and sticky, and uh, that that gets people rallied, but it doesn't necessarily create insight. That Airbnb example is really interesting. Has that affected your resort-owned and operated properties at all? Uh, well, it's affected everywhere. I mean, it, I, I've been on the uh, – I was chair of the Michigan Travel Commission for the last couple of years, and, and we're looking at it from a statewide perspective, um, how it's impacted some of the communities with summer business, you know, these – Communities that have huge summer tourism, the number of homes that have been you know, converted into Airbnb are massive, and it's creating overcrowding conditions and beaches and some resort towns. So it's happening summer, winter, all kinds of different destinations across the planet, not just uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, I mean, we're certainly seeing benefits in Michigan and New England from it, but but certainly the the biggest impact is in communities like Montana, where you've got a lot of idle product that doesn't have a lot of warm beds historically, but people who own these assets are saying, well, it's easy for me to put it in the Airbnb system and make some money and, and fill it up. And we're getting a lot of skier traffic um, because of that. Yeah. You know, I have to say when, when we travel, we have small children, my wife and I, it, the Airbnb is great for us because it has usually a separate bedroom, which you don't have with the hotel, right? So the kids go to sleep at eight o'clock and we're kind of sitting huddled in the corner of the hotel room while they, you know, hoping not to wake them up. Airbnb kind of solves that problem. So it's it's an interesting change to the market. And it'll be interesting to see how the uh, hospitality base adapts to that with maybe some different sorts of properties. Yep. Now, I will say, because people, more people have an icon pass, right, the, mm-hmm. this year than last and, and, and more than had max, those people are looking to travel, right? They are definitely people who are traveling skiers. So they're also more likely to be using Airbnb or hotel rooms because they don't have an asset that they own at that location. So it's, it's, it's kind of compounding momentum. It's, it's definitely good for the destinations, and we're preparing for that growth um, you know, sometimes you got growing pains as you as you go through the process. You don't know what you don't know until you know it, and uh, you got to make those adjustments. And buying lifts or building new, you know, on mountain restaurants and stuff don't happen overnight. They take planning and a lot of capital, and and uh, you got to kind of work at it over time. So lots of different challenges, uh, lots of different things to adapt and evolve to. It just got a little more interesting when Vail bought Peak Resorts. That was a huge deal out here. It substantially increased their footprint. I uh, now own four mountains in Vermont, uh, actually three in Vermont, four in New Hampshire, uh, one in New York, one of the busiest mountains in the Northeast in Hunter Mountain. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that Vail swooped in and bought Peak? I was expecting it, so I, I, I wasn't surprised, but... Um it's it it is a it's a big move it's a good move i don't i think it's it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the new england market it's it's going to be fun actually i look forward to uh putting the gauntlet down with them and and uh competing it's it just 
you know, puts more pressure on everybody to do a better job. And uh, not that we weren't doing – it wasn't the pressure in New England already to do that, but it's it makes it a little more um, interesting. I think – We've seen, just as, a, as, a, as an antidote, wherever Vail has come into a market, we've seen actually benefits to the resorts we operate. It happened in Utah. It happened in Seattle. It happened in Vancouver. So, you know, last year they were pretty light in the market, but this this certainly, uh, we'll see. We're, we're optimistic that it's not a negative and it actually just stimulates more more activity. And, you know, there's not everybody wants to be a Vail fan, if you will. There's certainly a big market outside of, of their world, and, and uh, we've just got to do a great job and, and keep attracting more of our customers and, and building the momentum that we've uh, we've got. That's so interesting. Well, what do you think is behind that surge in your business when Vail buys nearby? Um, you know, I, we've been trying to, to dissect it. I, I, I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, one is their pricing models and stuff create they bring volume in that then replaces volume that they were otherwise the local resort was competing. I mean, Whistler was an example of a place that just got overrun by Epic pass holders, and they really started to turn their back on the local market because, for whatever reason, they didn't need it or want that traffic anymore. So it really opened up uh, the door to Cyprus expanding its local relationship with the Vancouver market, as one example. Utah we had competed tooth and nail with the old canyons um, when they went after the local market heavily, and it really opened up a market for us, for Brighton, that we had been strong in, but we really were able to take advantage of what happened. Again, kind of the same thing. You got a huge volume of people coming from outside the area, skiing those resorts. They don't focus and put programs in place that cater to the locals. It opens up the door again to us. So, those are examples of, of local markets spinning to us, how it will work. I think it's actually happening at the destination markets, too. I, I would argue that Yellowstone Club has sold a billion and a half dollars worth of real estate in part because of so many people being pissed off, and excuse me for saying that word, at, at the Vale Valley and being you know overrun at Presidents and Christmas Week. I mean, people who have got enough money to own a place in Vale, a $7 to $10 million house, I mean, they've been moving out of there in by the hundreds to Yellowstone Club and to the Big Sky Market because they're just fed up with the lift lines that, that occur during some peak time. So it's happening at the local market, which is obviously a different price point than the multimillionaires moving out of Vale, et cetera. And so as you see these disgruntled folks moving, shifting their loyalty, shifting to different mountains, are are you learning from that and adjusting your customer service and, and what you focus on to meet the needs that are not being met at these other mountains? I, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. If we look at it exactly that way. We're definitely constantly analyzing what we're doing well and what we're not doing well and adjusting things. We look at NPS at all levels and all all locations uh, at a resort, and you know, if there's a particular food venue that's not getting good reviews, we know it and we're addressing it, whether it's management or facilities, we're trying to address it. So it, it, it's a very block and tackling effort uh, that occurs every day, every month of the year, and then certainly our capital planning addressing our deficiencies. And, and as I said, there's growing pains at, in Utah and in Montana, for example, that we're trying to address um, 
with with capital plans, certainly in the short run and, and medium term, trying to make sure we don't get caught with with bad customer service because we've been overrun or um, didn't cater to a certain niche that we need to cater to. And, and definitely that's something we're constantly looking at. What are we missing? What what activities? What what you know food and beverage are we missing? Um, how do we develop the summer months? How do we continue to reinforce our snowmaking efforts, um, et cetera? I mean, we're definitely focused on our, our organic growth and by, you know, focusing on the customer and what they want or don't want and then obviously thinking differently and giving customers the iPhone that they didn't know they needed. That's the other thing we try to do is try to figure out what's the next thing that's going to make a big difference in, in a customer's mindset. Well, there's a lot of things that you're doing right, and and I think one of those that Boyne was always known for since I was a kid was uh, snowmaking. I have this really terrible timing with pre-planned ski trips. So last winter, it was MLK weekend, uh, we were just getting dumped down in the Northeast. And of course, I had planned a trip back to Michigan uh, to see my family ski with some friends. So you looked at the map, and it was one of these things where there was a donut hole over the lower peninsula which is the only place in the eastern half of the United States that was not getting snow, and it was freezing. And I went up to Caberfay on Saturday. It was, it was nice in the morning that it got pretty icy. It was just freezing, one of these Michigan days where it's, you know, 5, 10 below zero. So we already had, for the rest of the weekend, we'd booked up at Boyne, got up early Sunday, drove up from Midland area where I was staying with my family, and I was like, you know, this is just, it's going to be uh, boilerplate. We'll, we'll take a couple runs. We'll go hit the bar. And I hadn't been to Boyne in a long time, probably since early 2000s. So we get there. It's about five below zero. Really not a lot of people there, uh, even though it was a holiday weekend. And I, I think that's because of the temperatures. But I'll be honest, Stephen, I could not believe how good the snow was on Boyne Mountain. It was, and it was, it was consistent throughout the mountain, which it's, it's a big place. It's a pretty broad mountain. And it stayed that way. So can you talk a little bit about what Boyne is doing with snowmaking and grooming to create that kind of surface in those kind of conditions where it, you would just really not expect it at all? Well, it's, it's, it's funny you were able to kind of have the Caberfay, you know, in the same market right down the street and have... And I love Caberfay, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I love, love it's got a great vibe, but had boilerplate probably because, I mean, I, I would know why, because the technology they're using and... and, and uh, their execution strategy. We, we have, from when I grew up here, you know, skiing in the 70s and 80s, it was boilerplate. It was, you know, a sheet of ice and a, and a big pile of snow, a sheet of ice pile of snow, very much like New England skiing, its reputation has or had. Um, and we eliminated that. We basically eliminated boilerplate in the Midwest. I put the Michigan conditions up against anywhere else other than a great powder day somewhere. Day in and day out, the Michigan conditions are better than anywhere else in North America, I would argue. And it is because of the Boyne Low E technology and making it extraordinarily dry from the get-go and, and, and making snow when it's cold and being able to pick and choose when you make snow. Um, it's improved. Obviously, the, the grooming output um, is improved. But how you make snow is the critical piece of it and the technology you deploy. And we've been focused since... 2007 on New England in in banning boilerplate at our three resorts. We're working every year to improve the snowmaking technology and systems to be able to achieve that and changing our protocols to achieve that. And 
We've made huge strides. I think sugar loafers have seen that over the last three or four years in particular. I'm going to see it in spades the next two or three more. Um, Sunday River has seen a, a vast improvement, making it very easy for our people that work on the mountain to making snow to make consistently dry snow. How, how you do that is through technology, procedures, etc. And, I mean, there's no reason New England should have boilerplate. The, the, the icy New England reputation, I'm hell-bent on exhuming that from the protocol of what people perceive New England's king to be. See, at least the resorts we're operating, I know we can get there over the next few years, and we're well on our way. I, you know, when you've got water bars, which you can eliminate ultimately too, obviously that's a, a, a unique thing in New England where water comes out of the ground and, and basically soaks the snow. Um, dealing with that is sometimes logistically a real challenge, but they're usually just zones of this icy area. But we've made huge strides in the technology. We're, I just was on a call about uh, the, the capital investments this summer for next winter, how to make um, the leap forward on a number of uh, key runs in, in improving our ability to do that. And we're excited about it, and I think the reputation of New England skiing will be like it is in Michigan now, uh, where it used to be like it was in Michigan back in the 70s. I tell you, I couldn't have been more impressed or more surprised. What is the difference between those Michigan mountains and the New England mountains that's that's making the curve take a little longer? Because from my point of view, other than the size of the mountains and a little bit of altitude in New England, it's it's basically the same conditions. It's freezing, uh, and when it's cold, it's cold, and you when when it snows, it's great. Uh, but otherwise, you're you're kind of dealing with those elements. So, so what is the difference between those two markets that you're trying to iron out to duplicate those great Michigan conditions at your New England mountains? Well, uh, so so one factor is certainly the the broadening of the, the the next generation technology, and we've got a bit of an advantage in Michigan with the Boyne Low E being more prevalent. So, we we're starting from a point where everything we make in Michigan is is at the ultimate level of quality. Um, we, we're migrating to, to, to new technology in New England. There's thousands of, of snow gun heads and thousands of locations to upgrade. Um, it takes a heck of a lot of capital to do it. You also have to have the horsepower, the water and air to be able to make and decide not to turn your snowmaking system on until the temperature gets below a critical quality level. In, 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 the, in the past, you didn't have the luxury especially in, in November and December, of not making snow, um, you know, above, say, 25 to 28 degrees. You, you had to be making snow or you weren't going to get open for Christmas. If you have enough horsepower, you can say, we're not going to turn on the system until it gets to 22. That's, you know, a paradigm shift of three, four, five degrees make a huge difference in the quality. If you, you can do that if you've got enough horsepower to be able to cover the mountain and achieve your opening sequence goals. So it's a it's a balance of a whole bunch of different factors. Um, you got to have enough capacity, you got to have the technology and the excuse the expression idiot proof technology that it, it, it you can't mess it up. Um, and it doesn't like go off on its own and 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 change its settings. I mean, some of the old technology used to have to be constantly monitored um, and and you'd have one gun squirting water or, or almost icy water and the next one's making dry the next one's making half you know half wet and 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 when you've got inconsistently going down the mountain you're going to have different zones and once you put wet snow out there it is forever there the rest of the winter you cannot get rid of it mm. and once you have a rainstorm the water penetrates and then 
sets in those layers, and that's where boilerplate comes from. So if you never make it wet, you never get boilerplate. And and that's a, a critical thing to be able to achieve that level of quality consistently over, you know, these huge mountains in New England. Well, if, if you can solve that puzzle, you will be the hero of this region, I'll tell you, because it is the number one thing that we all deal with. I think, you know, we're we're blessed out here with some really terrific mountains, great vertical drops, great, you know, just huge layouts, but we need snow, more snow than we probably get. And the boilerplate sets in. And even even in the spring, I was uh, skiing Killington uh, as late as May 24th, and there was still that icy underlayer uh, on a 60 degree day. So it's it's just, you know, it's a glacier. And once it's there, nothing nothing but the sun is gonna melt it. Indeed, it's, uh, it, can, it can be impacted and then we will impact it significantly. It takes some time and, and a lot of resources, though, and focus. Yeah, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your eastern mountains, and I'll you know, start with Sunday River because you were just we were just talking about the, the snowmaking technology, and, and Sunday River every year is going toe to toe with Killington. Opened on October nineteenth last year, which is pretty incredible. It's not like it's sitting on the Continental Divide or something out in the Rocky Mountains. It's We're talking about Maine here. So how important is it to get these mountains open? This is a showcase of of this is what we can do with our snowmaking. Well, it's 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 part of Sunday River, and this goes back to Les Otten. I mean, he was the guy that put in place, set the table to be able to have Sunday River open early. He's got a lift system that allowed upper mountain access and cycling. So, you know, Les, again, give him credit for setting the stage. You know, we have really doubled down on the technology and the horsepower to enhance that. But they used to compete back in the you know, back in the day, who was going to open first between Killington and Thunder River? This is a long, long-lasting um, rivalry. Uh, we've actually beat a basin uh, a few years ago. I mean, we're the first to open in, in the U.S. Uh, at Sunday River. I think we built Killing, beat Killington. When Powder took Killington over, they kind of backed off of that for a few years, but they've they've regained their footing and and have uh, they have a fundamental advantage there to be open a little earlier, a little higher. Um, I would argue Sugarloaf could probably beat both if if it wanted to, um, and we are putting in place things to probably allow Sugarloaf to go earlier. It's just the market isn't as receptive, you know, to get people up there. But it's been, you know, part of our DNA. We're in Michigan. We always open first. It's one of the biggest things to get open first, and our technology allowed us to do it. And we compete with some great local areas, Nubs Knob and others that uh, have, a, you know, more more horsepower per acre than anybody in New England has, and uh, Michigan goes at it hard, even with the warm Lake Michigan temperatures that we, we deal with here. So it's in our DNA, it's in Sunday River's DNA, and we, when we got there, we said, <laughs> that is something you want to get, and we motivate the troops to try to, to win that. I mean, there's all kinds of stealthy things we do in terms of uh, you know, what hour of the day we're going to open. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a game that's a lot of fun, and the teams get excited about it, and there's a lot of pride in, uh, in winning that. And how much of that is local decision-making, and how much of that is Boyne working with these teams and saying, hey, it'd be great if you guys could try to beat Killington? It's a dance. I mean, when we first started, you know, Dana Bullen's been the GM there since we, we acquired it, and, and one of the first meetings he asked, you know, we used to beat or try to compete with Killington, and ASC wouldn't let us compete with our own selves. And I said, well, you know, game on, so right. go for it. And Les said, again, set the table with, with the uh, T2 lift that allowed mid-station loading. You could you can make snow in the upper part where it's colder, 
and open that section to get an earlier start. So we green-lighted it. You know, I think that was in August of, of 2007 when we had that conversation, and we did everything possible. I don't know if we were first to open that year. We were darn close, and then we won it probably half the time. Um, Killington's definitely um, picked up the pace the last few years with their efforts, and it's good for the market to have Killington and Sunder River beating on each other for first to open. Oh, I love it. I, we're, we're watching the temperatures every day out here starting in uh, in late September. I remember skiing Boyne Mountain in May back in the day, and I was just in the 90s, and I was, I was amazed that it was open, but there it was, so keep going. So uh, a little more about Sunday River. There's a, a lot of acreage you own there. About, I've seen a number up, up to 6,000 acres. I don't know what the actual number is. I've seen a few different numbers. Ten, actually, 10,000 be simple there. Any possibility of or talks ever of expanding that mountain it's already huge i'll grant you that but uh yeah we have plans to expand we actually have a a, a shorter term ninth mountain that we're looking at um activating in the next couple of years it won't be a, a big ski mountain it'll be more ski and ski out single family lots that that are proximal to the core of the resort but it will be another peak and and some more skiing we don't need more terrain there yet we're, we're focused on glading we're focused on expanding trail systems within the current lift pods there's a number of uh, additional runs that should be cut and will be cut over the coming years before we expand to another mountain out in near jordan i mean there's there's definitely more expansion out that direction and we're also focused on the snowmaking as well we've got to get the physical snowmaking plant to come along and we've made huge strides the last couple of years since 2007 actually but we've we made a big move last year and we're in the process of making several several more big moves so we can really get the current large mountain open and consistently resurfaced in that no boilerplate mode that we talked about a few minutes ago so it doesn't need to be bigger at this point to really i think enhance the experience we've got lifts that need to be replaced upgrading lifts will be a focus in the coming years and upgrading snowmaking and enhancing uh, different activities winter and summer we just bought the we took over the sunday river golf course and that's you know a bigger part of the experience in the summer. We're looking at uh, enhancing the spa facilities, and there's many other things we're looking at to to create more reasons to come to Sunday River in different seasons. You've said, Stephen, that you're not interested in buying more mountains, at least at this time. And recently, you got access to about 400 million in capital. So it sounds like most of that money is being re- reinvested back into the mountains that you have, improving those mountains, modernizing those mountains with snowmaking, introducing more glades, which I'm always glad to hear. Is, is that where you're, where you're heading toward? Just let's fix up what we have, make these the best? Yeah, well, remember the 400,000, 400 million went to acquire resorts and refinance existing debt. It had some additional cash that was available for, for capital. Our recent raise of 60 million went to a little bit of refinancing, but also for growth capital going forward. And the intent is to deploy it at the resorts that we own and operate and, and not acquire new facilities in at least three, three, four years, I would say. Not that we wouldn't manage other resorts. I mean, we could certainly see ourselves taking uh, a management role, but at this point, we're not going to deploy capital that would dilute our execution strategy. We've got 10-year plans we're developing everywhere. Some are in place, some are public, some are not public. We're, we're hell-bent on executing these plans and, and really, again, competing in each market we do business and creating much better experiences for our guests, summer, winter, fall, whenever. It's, it's a lot to do. There's a lot of organic growth to fuel, 
and uh, we're excited, as I said at the beginning, to, to be able to do that with this new capital structure and our our performance. We we can definitely compete and probably out out capitalize most of our competition, assuming there's not some billionaire that's throwing money at a at a resort that doesn't make any sense. You know, one of your biggest expansions in recent years was at Sugarloaf with Bracket Basin and Burnt Mountain. I feel like that mountain's a little off the radar just because where it's located, but it's definitely one of the top mountains in New England. This terrain is incredible. It's it's probably the best inbounds expert skiing in New England. Was that what you were trying to appeal to? Was was more drawing that expert crowd, or was there some other motive behind that? Uh, Bracket Basin has been a vision for, I mean, go back to Lassen before, of opening up that mountain. It's a mountain sitting right next to the beautiful Sugarloaf, which is this you know, beautiful, pointy mountain, but there's a huge mountain to the left of it, and everybody want, knew that someday, somehow we're going to get there, and that was one of our BHAGs when we got to Sugarloaf, is, is opening up Bracket, and we thought that it was better to do it with a light touch environmentally, a light touch, and create the kind of experience that you get in the West, which Sugarloaf is uniquely a place that can have a western feel from a ski perspective with the snow and, and, and the snowpack it has. We thought glading was the way to go, so that's the direction we went. And we've started the cat skiing last winter, which was a huge success. The winter before, we didn't really use it because of the snow conditions, but last winter was used heavily. So between uh, hiking, cat skiing, and just, just coming across from the current mountain, you know, we may end up putting a T-bar in or some kind of light-touch lift system to... Uh, expand the usage over there, but it's not going to have snowmaking because you can't put snowmaking glades at this point. And, uh, you know, with it targeting expert skiers, or certainly folks who can go off piste, if you will, into the glades is is better than average. But there's a lot of terrain in there that's not for experts. You can be in the glades and be, you know, an intermediate skier too. So it's got a, a pretty diverse palette in there. And more importantly, it just builds on the Sugarloaf DNA. The Sugarloafer is, you know, a proud bunch they they do believe they have the best mountain in New England, and this gives it a dimension on certain days. That's a really special experience. I did it last winter, and it it is just I've had literally I've said to Sugarloaf team out of my top five days the last say five years, three of them have been at Sugarloaf, and that includes all the days I spent in Montana, and I've been in you know other places in North America and, and Europe, but three of my top five days have been. You know, powder days at Sugarloaf, believe it or not, and and the Glade experience I had last winter was just phenomenal. So you know, I, I, it's there. It's obviously not consistently there every year the same way because the weather's a little different in in uh, New England. Of course, it's helicopter skiing, etc. Isn't consistent either, I guess, in the Canadian Rockies. But you got to pick your winter and pick your year. But it de- definitely gives a dimension to the the core Sugarloafer who lives in Portland and. And regionally, a whole nother reason to love Sugarloaf. So where were those other two two top five days that weren't at Sugarloaf? Uh, one at Big Sky and one at Mejev. Mejev in France. In a, in a gladed mountain that I had about 18 yeah. inches of snow um, in this back place that nobody goes to, um, these old growth trees. And Big Sky on uh, Dakota, which is the off the left of the mountain, on these be- beautiful old growth uh conifers that you can ski down through. So, I mean, Sugarloaf has experiences that rival the West. And and I would say the boilerplate issue is substantially reduced there and and eliminated in many spots. And I've had, you know, groomer experiences there that are as good as 
a Western experience day in and day out. One of the things at Sugarloaf that people agitate for a little bit and wonder about is that gondola. Is that ever coming back? It was in one of Boyne's long-term plans, I think around 2010. Well, we, we talked about a signature lift. We never said gondola. We've never uttered the word gondola, just for the just to make sure, We at least not that I recall. It was always intended we would put a signature lift in, and we have a lift plan that provides that signature lift and a reconfiguration that is going to be game-changing and significant. But you got to realize that that mountain has a lot of wind, and you've got to deal with that wind. And if you go top to bottom without any way of, you know, mid-breaks or, or having staggered lift system, that lift is going to be down and, and, and vulnerable too much of the year. So mm-hmm. the idea of a top-to-bottom lift is really not in the plan, but a greatly enhanced lift system, and we'll be talking about that in the coming months, if, if not within a year, because we're, 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 we're preparing for a pretty significant commitment to our lift systems across the network on a multi-year basis and uh we've got the plan we're just working on fine-tuning it and and the contracts to to execute it yeah well i'll tell you wind holds were a huge problem out here last year so it's it's nice to see the mountain putting that kind of thought into it because if they don't like you said if the top isn't available the whole lift isn't available and that really really shuts down a lot of the mountains so and and then temperature wind and temperature are the two things and and you can kind of smell where we're going in, in montana to deal with those issues and we're going to be more aggressive, as some resorts in New England have, with making the lifts much more friendly to inclement weather. It's interesting you talk about lifts. Boyne has always been a leader in lifts. And it's funny, when I was researching this, is when I discovered that Boyne had the first triple and quad chairs. And you don't really think of those now as being innovations, but at one time, nobody had those. And then your father worked with one of the lift companies to make that happen. You opened the, the Ram Charger 8 last year, at Big Sky. That was a big deal. Do you think we'll see more of those? Is that, or was that just a unique lift for a unique mountain? Well, I've got a graph of Europe, and Austria has 47 of them, and North wow. America has one. So why would Austria have 47 in, in a footprint smaller than Maine, and we've got one? It's just because we haven't adopted that technology over here. So I, I think it's just a matter of time. It, it's not for every location, and it's definitely not for every resort. It's a big ticket, big infrastructure commitment. But, you know, when we put the first sixth place in, we put the first quad in, and nobody had one, and everybody started going to quads. We put the first sixth place in in 92 at Boyne Mountain, and uh, Europe didn't have any, by the way. And now there's probably 700 sixth places in Europe, and you know, many, many, many in North America. So six places became ubiquitous. In fact, I think the lift companies are probably going to eliminate making high-speed quads within a couple of years, and six places and eight places will be the only thing you can buy. So it's amazing how far we've come that you can't buy, you know, you certainly can't buy a single chair very easily or a double, triple, and a quad's going away, at least in the in the high-speed side. And sixes are now kind of the standard, and, and eights are specialty purpose and and we'll see other eights uh within our system in the coming years but they're they're not for everywhere they're definitely for key feeder locations that are not overly long um because it's a huge lift i mean the infrastructure size is bigger than a gondola the the terminal size on the eight place is bigger than any gondola ever built so it's it's massive but it's as easy to load as the quads are i mean with the new technology the loading carpets the raisable carpets for kids and the locking mechanisms for safety Ram Charger 8 is truly an amazing piece of 
engineering and, 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 and customer comfort and safety, and it just takes it to a different level, and we're, we're excited about having that technology you know, throughout our Boyne Resorts ultimately. Yeah, the first one seemed to, to get a really great reception last year, but that's just a, really a small part of what's going on at Big Sky. Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, Big Sky 2025 and what you have going on out there? Sure. Uh, Big Sky 2025 is, is really a 10-year plan. It started three or four years ago, and it's basically the next chapter in, in growth. We've been on a four-decade growth curve there, and this is kind of taking it to another gear, if you will. And, and we, we thought it was important to communicate to the community um, at large, where we're going and, and what our priorities were in terms of the next 10 years. And lift systems are a big part of it. The transformation of Big Sky into what we call America's Alp, which is really creating a European sensibility, meaning the, the high-tech lift systems that you find in Europe. We're trying to emulate and, and actually leap forward beyond what's in Europe even. The on-mountain dining and food and beverage experiences that you find um, in the best places in Europe, we're trying to execute that at the highest level certainly you know transforming our base village we're, we're going through right now a major transformation of the of the uh, what was called the mountain mall um, it'll be called the exchange going forward a epicenter of of social interaction and après ski that you see in europe we're, we're trying to transform the experience of big sky into something that is really international in flavor and uh, those are elements of it and, and then what's going on in the community at large what we look as a symbiotic relationship between the other developers and the town center. We've got a real town now there in, 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 in Big Sky that is developing in the last few years. We've got um, infrastructure like hospitals and schools and churches, and you know it's a place to live. It's a, it feels like a community where it didn't maybe five, ten years ago. We've got the first five-star hotel going in on, on our wing, a montage of $430 million hotels going in. So there's a lot going on around us. And that's all part of the Big Sky 2025 vision, and it's a transformative next step. I'm, I'm staring at a, a project that will become public probably in a year. We've got other lifts that are on the docket. We'll announce hopefully one this fall and then another one the following year. Twelve lifts in total, I think, are part of the, the 2025 plan, 12 new or moved lifts, so a major infrastructure upgrade over that decade that transforms Big Sky into something that is world-class. It's it's America's Matterhorn, as I call it, and, and we're trying to really take advantage of that and make sure it's it's aptly uh, supported with the infrastructure. Can you give us any hints on what that means for the tram? Uh, that's on the list for an upgrade or alternate routes um, to get there to the top. So we're, we're, we've got a plan there that may happen in the short run, and then a longer-term plan is in the, the tail end of 2025. But um, it's on the docket for a re remodel. Does that mean a bigger tram box? Uh, it would be a bigger, definitely, we're not going to build the same size. It would definitely be a bigger tram. And, and the question is, what else would be with it? And, you know, is there food and beverage with the tram like you'd see in Europe? I mean, all, all kinds of things like that are, are being looked at. All right, Stephen. Well, I've taken my hour. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to join us. I will uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime. Well, likewise. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. And uh, hopefully it uh, is worth it. An hour's of people's time to listen to it. I, I thank you very much. It definitely was, Stephen. Stephen Kircher, President and CEO of Boyne Resorts. How good is that guy at what he does? He knows every detail of every mountain. Boyne is so big and so important to this industry. We could have talked about that all day long. Let's hope he joins us again soon. 
Uh, if you liked that interview, if you liked the show, go to iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. You'll also want to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com so you get new episodes as soon as they're out. Next week, a week off. No podcast over Thanksgiving week, but the first week of December. Look for my interview with Kevin Mack, General Manager of Burke Mountain, Vermont. If you aren't familiar with Burke, study up. It is an awesome mountain, laced with glades, some of the best in the state. It's cheap. It's uncrowded. It's the kind of mountain we need a whole lot more of, and you'll hear from the guy who runs it all on December 4th. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Stuart Winchester. I look forward to doing it again soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.